Well, speaking of Herrick, we actually probably should have class outside. I mean, it is the first nice day. You guys want to do it? Let's do it. Yeah. Wow. Hell yeah. April Fools. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the cruelest month, as they say. What'd you say? Is it 50? Oh, he's gotten up there. Barely 50. Yeah, Barely 50. Yeah. 5.49. Just like me. We're on the windows. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us are doing the windows here. I don't know. Somehow 50 in Waltham feels colder than, than 30 in Cambridge. I don't know why that is. <laughs> I, mean, I do. It's the, the wind. It's the atmosphere. It's the Five. wind. Yeah. Five. That must be good. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, let me close the door. Um, Thursday is Herbert's birthday. He would have been 428 years old if he'd lived. Do we have class on Friday? Friday, yeah. But it'll be the day after his birthday. Never bring in a cake. Sadly, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, so we were looking at the forerunners, which in uh, the Norton is page two eighty four. I have we moved on to Marvell. Sorry. Sorry, it's forerunners. No, 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 Herbert. Um, yeah, so we'll start Marvell on Friday. Friday. Yeah. And um, just remember again uh, that amazing ending to The Flower. That is that um, once again I relish versing after all this, um, everything that he'd gone through, um, all the um, storms that thy tempest fell on me all night it cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempest fell all night after everything that he'd gone through um, all the melancholy all the sadness every sense that he had of um, having um, uh, been too proud in imagining that he was going to be saved um, offering it heaven, as he put it, and then being punished for that. Um, that now he's back to where he was and that once again he relishes um, versing and how happy that makes him um, that he can be there. Um, and so The Forerunners is also a poem then about a lot of time has passed. He's not what he once was. Um, so just to go back to the beginning of it again, the harbingers are come, harbingers um, of the coming of um, whoever will take, whatever, whoever will take over um, his possessions. Um, so it feels like a theological term, that is the harbingers of the second coming, the harbingers of Christ, the harbingers of Easter, of spring, of resurrection, of rebirth but also um, the opposite of that, um, the signs of the coming of death. Um, 
So the harbingers are come. See, see their mark, white as their color, and behold my head. So there's my white head, and that's okay, but must they have my brain? Must they dispark those sparkling notions which therein were bred? Um, drive away those ideas bred within my brain. Um, do they have to have that too? Must dullness turn me to a clod? Yet have they left me, thou art still my God. That is, they've left him that idea, that line. They've left him that knowledge, thou art still my God. Um, there might be a, um, a chiming double meaning there, which is something that Herbert is particularly good at, that is having lines with a double meaning, but both meanings are actually um, uh, are, are two versions of the same meaning. So, yet have they left me, um, so the harbingers have deserted me, um, rather than um, left um, to me, legated to me, or, or permitted me to keep. They've deserted me, but you are still my God. Yet, so it depends on whether you, whether you take, thou art still my God as the direct object of left. They have left me this line, thou art still my God, or this idea, or this feeling. Or they have left me, but even though they've left, abandoned me, thou art still my God. It's more the first than the second because the problem is they haven't really abandoned him. Um, but there's but the second, which is a possible resonance of the line, a possible way of feeling um, the meaning of the line, would work that way also, would mean the same thing. Good men ye be to leave me my best room. Um, so his best room, he's about to explain, is his heart. But also, they have left me, thou art still my God. So somehow that line is also his best room. Um, do people know what the Italian for the word room is? Stanza? Stanza. Yeah. Uh, we talk about stanzas in poem because a stanza is actually a room within the uh, structure of the poem. So if they've left him his best room, um, it's also the stanza that ends, or that proclaims, that says, Thou art still my God. Okay, now we can start. <laughs> um, good men ye be to leave me my best room, even all my heart, and what is lodged there. Um, so you've left me my heart, I haven't taken that over, and you've left me what's lodged in my heart, namely my belief, my love for God. I pass not, I, what of the rest become, so it doesn't matter to me um, what becomes of the rest. So thou art still my God, be out of fear. Um, so again, that's the phrase, thou art still my God, as long as that phrase. So if you have, in, if in your edition it's in parentheses, the parentheses there are more like quotation marks rather than they're kind of tongs holding those words, not something that you can skip the way we can often skip parentheses. Uh, page 284. Um, so 
thou art still my God, be out of fear. As long as that phrase is not at risk, he will be pleased with that ditty, and if I please him, I write fine and witty. So as long as I can still say, thou art still my God, that's worth all the poetry, all the sparkling notions that my brain did breed. Thou art still my God is enough. And if I please him, I write fine and witty. And then, farewell sweet phrases, lovely metaphors. So that's a farewell in old age to the ability to write poetry. It's pretty sad, that idea that he feels that he's writing about his declining powers to write. Farewell sweet phrases, lovely metaphors. But will ye leave me thus? So again, there's everything that's <coughs> been left him. Now they're leaving him. So yet have they left me. That's, um, now we can feel that second resonance of that meaning. Farewell sweet phrases, lovely metaphors. But will ye leave me thus? When ye before of stews and brothels only knew the doors, then did I wash you with my tears. And more brought you to church, well-dressed and clad. My God must have my best, even all I had. So when all you were about, all my ideas, all poetic ideas in general, poetic language, was about profane love, I washed that language with my tears. I wept for it. I wept on its behalf. Now we can start. Um, I wept on its behalf. Um, and um, turned those phrases, that language, into um, something that can apply to go to church. My God must have my best, even all I had. And then again, lovely enchanting language. This is where we got to on Friday. Lovely enchanting language. Sugar cane. Honey of roses. Whither wilt thou fly? Where is all that language going? And again, what to repeat what I find so wonderful about this is the just the pure directness with which Herbert addresses that language. It's you know, poetic language is enchanting, um, but poets aren't supposed to say, hey, look at my enchanting language. They're supposed to enchant, not say they're enchanting. But because he's addressing his own language, um, that's a pretty spectacular thing to do, to address your own language as he's doing, um, to feel abandoned by your own language. Lovely, enchanting language. <coughs> Sugarcane, honey of roses, whither wilt thou fly? Where is that language going? Hath some fond lover ticed thee to thy bane? And wilt thou leave the church and love a sty? So are you going back to profane love? Wilt thou leave a church and love a sty? Fie, wilt thou soil thy broidered coat and hurt thyself and him that sings thy note? So who would that hymn be in line 24? It's a little bit um, worth figuring out. Would it be him? Would it be Herbert? 
Well, then that would mean that he was um, finding himself writing profane poetry. In other words, um, if they, if that language is flying towards um, profane eroticism, and then um, that language hurts the person who sings it, um, the person who's singing it would be singing profane songs, would be using language for profane purposes, would be writing profane love poetry. So he probably doesn't mean that he's doing that. I mean, it, in the, if, if the context of his poems were very different, if there were a lot of poems about how I'd like to be writing about God, but in fact all I can think about is sex, then maybe. Um, but when he says I'd like to be writing about God, what he says is, um, but some of my thoughts um, go to um, the noise and thunders of alarms. Um, but he doesn't say that they're going to um, thoughts of, of sexuality. He's saying his thoughts are flying asunder, not that they're going in the wrong, um, not that they're um, aff effectively um, expressing profane ideas. Um, he talks about his own ineffectuality when his poems aren't working, when his language isn't working, when his thoughts aren't working. So who would the hymn be here then? A profane poet. A profane poet. Yeah, that is that somehow the language is itself, and I think this is, you know, um, not a shallow idea. It's not, I don't, I don't think it's an idea you should turn into something philosophical, but I think as an affective idea, it's a, it's a decently deep one, that somehow the language has its own agency. That is, you're deserting me. This language is deserting me. Um, and it is offering itself to um, someone who's going to sing, um, who's going to use poetry for profane reasons. Um, maybe someone like Herrick, um, someone who's going to use poetry to try to seduce women, um, someone who will be seduced by that very language which um, allows him to seduce women. Um, so the language is flying from Herbert and going to someone else. And there's this idea that the beauty of the language is something that um, has its own um, status, something that is separate from its users. And that um, a user like him had been able to turn that into something religious, dress it up, bring it to church, wash it with his tears, um, brush its hair, make it all um, bushy-tailed and, <laughs> and um, eager and innocent. Um, or that language could go to someone else to be used um, for other, worser purposes. And because language is... is expressive, that is because language is supposed to say how you feel, but it turns out that somehow it's not quite that. It's something that might or might not offer itself to you um, as something lovely and enchanting. Remember, this is the issue also in Jordan, that is, um, who says that fiction and false hair only become a verse. Uh, is there in truth no beauty? Um, the beauty of language and the truth that 
you try to say with language don't necessarily go together. And the way they don't go together is what makes poetic effort on his part um, something like the kind of effort um, to achieve something, to attain something, um, where trying to achieve or attain it is the same sort. It, it's, it's sort of both what he wants to do for himself um, and what he's trying to do in his ministry, which is to save others. So in attempting to save himself, um, he attempts to achieve or attain his own salvation, and we saw something like that in Denial, where he attempts to achieve or attain prayer. But here it's just he's trying to use a language that can be used that is public, that belongs to everyone, um, because that is the nature of language, to belong to everyone. And he's trying to use that language um, and its beauty for purposes of salvation, even knowing that the language can easily escape from that um, and be used for purposes of sin. And um, the effort to keep it, to prevent it from being used for the purposes of sin, um, to use it for the purposes of salvation, um, is a kind of um, attitude towards his tools, towards his, po towards his own possibility to think and to express what he's thinking and to make his thought meet with its own expression, um, which is standing for um, a similar attitude towards salvation, something that he really needs to want and something that's not entirely in his own power. Um, so are you really going to leave me like this? Fie, wilt thou soil thy broidered coat and hurt thyself in him that sings thy note? Let foolish lovers, if they will love dung, with canvas, not with arras, clothe their shame. Um, so what do we think that means? If they're going to love profanely, let them not try and disguise it. Or I guess if it's still the poetry metaphor, if their poetry is going to be profane, don't wrap it up in, in beautiful words, <coughs> like ours being like pretty cloth. So. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, and I think it's even beyond that, which is why should it be the case that beautiful language can be used for, <coughs> um, for loving dung? Um, why is it that language, that the beauty of language is available to the profane as well as to the sacred? Um, that for him is um, an unfortunate thing, you could say. That is that, that and Again, that's, that's um, the issue in Jordan and in some of the other poems we looked at. Why is it that the beauty of poetry doesn't, isn't required um, to be a function of truth? How can you have beauty without truth? It may be that truth is beautiful. Um, that's what he was um, saying in Is There in Truth No Beauty? It may be that truth is beauty. Um, but that it doesn't follow that beauty is truth, the Keatsian idea. Uh, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. 
Um, and what's troubling him here is that you can have beauty which is not true. Um, and it's, that can also suggest that it's possible that there'll be truth which is not beautiful. Um, but why is it that this incredibly beautiful language can not can be something which which doesn't have to do with truth. Um, why does this lovely enchanting language? Why can it go elsewhere? Um, let foolish lovers, if they will love, dung if they will love dung, with canvas not with arras clothe their shame. Let folly speak in her own native tongue. So there should be a native language to folly. And what should that language be like? If Folly speaks in her own tongue, what will she sound like? Vulgar. Vulgar, yeah. Um, not beautiful. And yet, look at this. Um, this beautiful language is going to, uh, to, to foolish love. Then he does get back to beauty. True beauty dwells on high. So that may be an attempt to try to divide them. But if true beauty dwells on high, what it isn't is the beauty of language. That's the crucial thing here, is that beauty is something that language may point to in a line like true beauty dwells on high. Beauty may be something that language points to but true beauty is something like justice or salvation or godliness. Um, what it isn't is the English language used well. True beauty dwells on high. Ours is a flame but borrowed thence to light <clears throat> us thither. So what does that mean? It just guides us there. The beauty language leads us to the actual beauty. Yeah. And just the metaphor there is that um, whatever we know of beauty, it's like a torch that um, will give us light in this world so that we can find our way back to the world of light that lit our torch. Um, so the idea here is that it's that um, true beauty is just this blazing fire of beauty our beauty in this world is we lit a torch with that blazing, or God lit a torch for us from that blazing fire of beauty, and we can use the torch to find our way back to the blazing fire of beauty. Um, our beauty then would be the beauty of um, language, the beauty that's available to humans, um, derived from true beauty, um, but not itself true beauty, even if it helps us to go back to it. Beauty and beauteous words should go together. So the word should there suggests the possibility that they don't. Beauty and beauteous words should go together, um, but perhaps they don't. Perhaps a torch that can be used to light your way in the right direction can also be used to light your way into the wrong direction. So the beauty of words is like um, something lit by true beauty and may help you find your way to true beauty, but may not. May lead you instead to the dunghill of um, earthly love, of earthly eroticism, of earthly sex. 
and sexual desire. Yet if you go, I pass not, again, to his own language. So yet if you go, I pass not, if I'm no longer able to write poetry. Um, again, the whole personal aspect of this poem is that he's losing his power to write, to think verbally, or so he feels. Um, and therefore, what he's thinking is the thing that should light me to God, which is language, um, isn't, I don't have the language to do it anymore. <clears throat> Yet, if you go, I pass not. That's okay. You can go if you need to. Take your way, for thou art still my God, is all that ye, perhaps with more embellishment, can say. So no matter how beautiful the language, all it can say, at best, is thou art still my God. So as long as I have that, I have everything he's saying. Take your way, for thou art still my God, is all that ye, perhaps with more embellishment, can say. Um, look how typical that is of Herbert, embellishment. Yeah, because it's a long, cumbersome word, which kind of embellishes the line. There's a... Um, critic I had dinner with once, a fairly famous person, who said, no, I'm not going to say. Uh, no, he's, a, he's a nice guy, but he just said at dinner, you know, it's, um, there's only, no, Steiner, I would have no trouble saying things against. Um, uh, saying, there's only one line in English poetry where the poet uses a four-syllable word in the line. Um, the beginning of Paradise Lost, of man's first disobedience and the fruit. And that... That's five syllables. No. No, you, it's disobedience the way... Disobedience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of man's first is three. Disobedience gets you to seven. And the fruit gets you to ten syllables. So that's part of the way to know how to pronounce Shakespeare or Milton is to stick with the meter. So there is a little clip, disobedience. <laughs> I will not have you be disobedient. <laughs> not, oh, you're so disobedient. It's so cute. Um, so anyhow, this critic um, said this to me, and, and it seemed like such a cool point but then immediately seemed like not true. <laughs> For example, the first line of Paradise of Paradise Regained begins, Lo, I the man who of man's disobedience did will <laughs> sing. So there was disobedience again. And then um, the ghost in Hamlet talks about how he went to his death um, on, what is it, um, on something disappointed, unannulled. Um, I forget what the first thing he isn't. Um, so there's disappointed. Um, and then it turns out once someone tells you there are no four-syllable four words in poetry, <laughs> they turn out to be everywhere. <laughs> so like embellishment. Um, but still, it's, they're worth noticing. Um, and then Dunn, of course, will use five and six-syllable words. And uh, T.S. Eliot has a line which is 
the word polyphyloprogenitive. That's the whole line. <laughs> polyphyloprogenitive. It means liking many. to have what? Many what? Many. What is the word again? Poly, yeah. meaning many, many, as in polygon. Yeah. Philo. Uh, bread. Yeah. No. <laughs> Philo with a with a ph yeah. with a phi. Like a kiss. Maybe in modern Greek. Yeah. Uh, what's it's philosophy? A, love yeah. So, so lots of love. Many, many love. All right. So so That's you could say m- many loving many is is how to do polyphilo. Um, pro. Genitive, yeah. So liking to have, um, liking to engage in the act of creation with lots of different women, basically is what it means. Um, Enjoying procreation um, with as many people as possible. Polyphyloprogenitive. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) Um, More than four syllables. Do you guys see bad words yet, by the way? No, is it good? Is it it's really good, yeah. Yeah. It's um, Jason Bateman is doing his sort of Bill Murray um, huh. routine, and he does it really well. Um, anyhow, he's asked to spell some really, really long words. <laughs> um, it's worth saying. Okay, so uh, talking about bad words, that's what Herbert is complaining about when words go bad. Um, Yet if you go, I pass not take your way, for thou art still my God is all that ye perhaps with more embellishment can say. Go, birds of spring. So who are the birds of spring? Go, birds of spring. What? Robins? <laughs> In the poem, what are the birds of spring a metaphor for? Um, foolish lovers. Foolish lovers. No. No. His words. Yeah, his words. Yeah. The boys are voids. <laughs> Those boys are voids. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> April Fools. Go birds of spring. <laughs> I've gotten so many um, people already. Sorry? I've already gotten so many people. What, how? Uh, just like random things. Like I went up to some lady in CVS and told her I've been pregnant for like seven months. I was wondering if she could ha- like. <laughs> Did that just someone you didn't know? Yeah. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> so what did she no. say? I was like, I think I've been pregnant for like seven months. I don't know, but I can't buy a pregnancy test. Like I'm too embarrassed. Will you buy it? <laughs> oh my God. How old is this person? She was like 50s, I don't know. <laughs> what did she say? She was like, what? And then I just walked away. I started laughing. I started laughing. I started laughing. I, she probably knew. I was laughing. <laughs> she might not have been. That's not how it works. You don't April Fool by benefit of the doubt. I don't think that function. I texted my friend and told him, like, my car got stolen. They were all freaking out, calling me, like, are you, where are you? I was like, come pick me up at, like, this station. <laughs> I drove to the station. That's and I beyond April Fool. Made them you actually made the. It was down the road. It was down the road. It was, still. It was at that mobile, and I was like, before, I need. Like, I was like, it. yo, I was like, I want to go buy a pack of cigarettes, and like some guy broke my window and stole my wallet, and like, I need you to pick me up, and they're like, oh my god, okay. Oh my god. Wait, you smoke? Well, did you? <laughs> I thought you were an athlete. I am. I gotta quit. You're a smoker. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well. <laughs> well. Yeah, Professor Flash made us think that we were going to have class outside. So. Yeah, but that was totally minor league. <laughs> My God. I have water balloons. Maybe I'll try later. the I think I've been pregnant for seven years. <laughs> Actually, at the beginning of Paradise Lost, see, you you challenge. <laughs> he accepts. I know that you will <laughs> At the beginning of Paradise Lost, um, Milton calls upon the his muse, the Holy Spirit, um, and chiefly thou, ho, O Spirit, um, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, tell me, thou knowest, thou from the first wast present, um, and dove-like sat brooding o'er the vast abyss and madest it pregnant. Huh. And um, the, although in fact biologically it turns out not to be true, um, what Milton thought was true and therefore what is true in Paradise Lost, um, because in works of fiction, um, even if the science turns out to be wrong because it's a fictional world, the science is right in the fictional world. Um, just think of science fiction. You know, if you're reading a science fiction novel and um, someone goes faster than the speed of light in that science fiction novel, you can't say, oh, no, not if they didn't. Um, <laughs> Einstein showed they couldn't, so they didn't. Um, it's just things that are false in reality are true in fictional worlds. Um, so in Milton's fictional world, um, doves, if they brood over eggs, which is what the word brood means, are female. Um, in reality, it turns out male doves will brood also. They're one of the few birds, penguins also. Um, but there are few birds where the, where the males will brood um, and keep the eggs warm. But most birds, it's the females, it's the hens that brood. So when Milton says of the Holy Spirit that, um, that thou dove-like satst brooding or the vast abyss, the Holy Spirit, a dove, of course, is represented as female. Um, and matest it pregnant also represents the Holy Spirit as male. Um, so the Holy Spirit is um, um, inclusive, um, omnigendered, you could say, which is appropriate. Um, but the Holy Spirit is both male and female there, brooding like a female <coughs> um, and impregnating like a male. So um, I'll explain my April Fool's joke that way. All right, so yet if you go, I pass not. Take your way. For thou art so, oh my God, is all the e press with more embellishment can say. Go, birds of spring, let winter have his fee. So winter has to be paid also. Birds of spring will fly away. I'm getting old. Winter is coming. That's the metaphor. Let winter have his fee. Let oblique paleness chalk the door. So let it be cold and pale, um, the opposite of the warmth and greenery of summer. Let oblique paleness chalk the door. Remember, that door is the door to his own body. So all within be livelier than before. So the image that you get at the very end is like um, of um, a winter party inside. That is livelier there means that um, you know people are sitting in front of the fire and drinking and carousing and it's cold outside and the warmth inside is all the more attractive. Um, and that's um, 
how the turn in the poem works, um, the attractiveness of the idea of being safe inside in the room, in the stanzas of Thou Art Still My God, even if everything outside, all the language of this world is departing him. The birds of spring are gone. His words of spring are gone. Um, but as long as what's inside is livelier than before, it's okay. Um, so it's beautifully evocative, I think. Um, the way we go from um, the idea that he is going to be um, taken over by um, the encroachments of death while it's beautiful outside. Um, the sparkling notions which were bred within him are disparked, but the idea is still there are parks everywhere. It's just that he doesn't have access to that anymore. They're no longer internal. Um, there are these sweet phrases, lovely metaphors. Um, there's um, the lovely enchanting language, the sugar cane, the, the honey of roses, everything flying. The whole impression of the poem until you get to the very end is one of a lively outside world, um, a, a summary, um, lightsome, gladsome outside world, and him just somehow no longer part of that, um, being abandoned by this newness and <coughs> and renovation of the outside, which has nothing to do with him. But in the end, through the image of the flame, so in the second to last stanza, we get to the idea of darkness and the flame lighting us through darkness, the atmosphere is changing. I mean, it's just technically, evocatively, it's incredibly beautifully done. And you know, Herbert's, Herbert's capacities to evoke atmospheres um, are amazing. That's something to notice here. Okay, let's go to. Um, we're going to end with love three, but let's look at the poem called the pulley, which um, <clears throat> is on two seventy seven. So here's a little story that he's telling um, about human creation. Like redemption, it's a biblical story retold. Um, in this case, retold a little bit in the form of a fable and a little bit in the form of a Greek myth. Um, so someone read the first stanza? I guess we'll go. Uh, OK, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you got it. You volunteered, you got it. When God at first made man, having a glass of blessings standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can, that the world's riches which dispersed lie contract into a span. Great, thank you. Um, 277. Um, a glass of blessings. Anyone know who wrote a novel called that? Since quotational novels are on my <laughs> mind. It's a novel by Barbara Pym. So this is, when you read it, you will recall that this is where she got the title, um, A Glass of Blessings. So when God had first made man, when was that? The sixth day. Yeah, sixth day. Last. Yeah. 
I thought you were going to say. <laughs> the 6th of May. Or yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the 6th of Erev. Yeah. <laughs> the 6th of Erev, 4004 BC. Um, yeah, I think the, I think Bishop Usher's chronology, I think that humans fell on Good Friday of year one, um, which is 4004 BC. And I think they were created like a week before that. Um, not a lot of time, according to the um, to some of the 17th century um, people trying to reconstruct the the time frames <laughs> of uh, of the fall. Um, and Milton doesn't give Adam and Eve a lot of time either. I think Dante only gives them a couple of hours, um, if I recall that. If I recall correctly, in Dante they fall a couple of hours after their creation. Um, Doesn't Milton give him eight days? Yeah, while Satan is Satan is going around, around. The, is flying around the earth. So they get, um, yeah, they get a good long <laughs> <laughs> vacation before real life starts <laughs> in Paradise Lost. Um, but yeah, so uh, sixth day, God had first made man, having a class of blessings standing by. What do you think of that line? Yeah, it's, I mean, what it really is, is think of it as a jar of dressing, of, of dressing. <laughs> Having a jar of Italian dressing. a thousand <laughs> islands. Ooh, look, a thousand islands. Well, so think about the, the just the, the phrasing of standing by. Yeah. It makes it sound like he's anticipating fall. Like, well, something's going to go wrong, so I better have this ready. Okay, so standing by, um, it, that's actually probably more modern use of standby. That is, you know, stand by in case there's any danger. Yeah. Um, but it does have the um, that sense of um, of chance. Mm -hmm. That is, of it happens that he had a glass of blessings there. Um, so there's something really casual about this description of creation. Um, again, that's the kind of atmosphere that Herbert can just evoke, just like that. So God first made man, you know, that's the big thing. That's what we most care about. Oh, and he happened to have a glass of blessing standing by. That is, he noticed he was making man. He said, oh, wait, here's a good glass of blessings. Um, it wasn't like he had it there. I mean, you're reading it as he had it there just in case, like a fire extinguisher. Um, but it actually means, although it's from the same source originally, what it means is um, he was working and uh, making man. And then as he was making he said, oh, wait, cool, there's a glass of blessings here. That'll help. Um, so, so the standing by there is just really, really casual. It, it's like, you know, um, as I was waiting for the red line, um, hearing a musician playing some music, I remembered whatever. Um, it was a chance thing that then um, contributed to what happened next, um, but didn't have to, wasn't part of the plan. Um, and wasn't a major thing. That's, that's the tone of that. So when God had first made man, having a glass of blessing standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. So what are you noticing there? Just... Uh, lowercase h's, I don't know who's he. Yeah, okay, so he's God. Um, he, he is, even though it's not a case, that's a new thing. Yeah, that the upper casing 
of God is uh, is a standard thing later. But you could have you could print it with an uppercase um, H. It's not as though they're printing it here in original spelling. Um, so there would have been no problem printing it with an uppercase H, except it would really <coughs> intrude itself upon you. I mean, I think the lowercase, you're seeing the lowercase as more significant than it is, but the problem, what's significant about it is that it's not particularly significant, okay. whereas the uppercase H really would be significant. It would be, let us said, he. You know what uh, Monica Lewinsky used to call Clinton when she was talking to... Um, the person who was advising her to, to turn him in, they had a code name for him, the Big He. Um, so, um, Linda Tripp? Sorry? Linda Tripp. Yes, Linda Tripp, thank you. Yes, they called him the Big He. Um, I can't believe you remembered that. <laughs> Just let us. Who's us and who's he working with? Okay, right. Who's the us there? Okay, so the Trinity, but why isn't it... I mean, on yeah. So in some sense, clearly the Trinity, but then would it be the same if, let's say, you could get it to be metrical? When the Trinity at first made man, um, having a glass of blessing standing by, let us said they. they. Yeah, there's there's definitely a clash between let us and said he, right? I'm not saying it's a, oh, my God, what a clash. I can't stand it. <laughs> um, but it's something noticeable. It's not standard usage. Um, where would you have that kind of usage? There are, there are unexpected places where you might find that kind of usage. Latin? Is that what you're talking about? No. <laughs> Since you're asking, I'm saying no. <laughs> Remember Queen Elizabeth's famous line, we are not amused? Uh, the royal we. Yeah, the royal we technically called, what? Uh, the Pope, too. Does the Pope use it? Yeah, he's. In Latin, so there you go. Um, it's also called the we of majesty. Um, and it's the idea in the we of majesty or the royal we um, is, you know, think again of King Lear, since now we will divest us both of cares of state um, and, and whatever else he's divesting himself of. Um, the we of majesty is when you speak in official terms, and not when you do, when um, a king does. Um, that is, it's, um, it actually probably comes from Genesis, um, because what you get in Genesis, anyone know the line in Genesis? Genesis about the creation of humans. I think you told us once. Yeah, I did. Whoa! <laughs> but it's only your own creation. No one wants to think about. <laughs> no one wants to think about their own creation. Yeah. Was this the line about um, God making man from the clay? Uh huh. Breathing into his mouth. Yeah, into his nostrils. Let us make man in our own image. And God said, let us make man in our own image. And so he made man in his own image. Um, male, uh, in his own image created he him. Male and female. Created he them. 
So, um, and in the Hebrew, the word for God is always plural. Um, we talked about this. Um, but the verb is almost always singular. It's one of the strange things about um, the Hebrew Bible, that the word for God is Elohim, which is plural. Um, and But it usually, in Hebrew, you'll get a singular verb. So it's God's says um, whatever. Um, God's says you have to honor your father and your mother. God's is angry at Abraham um, or God's was angry at Abraham. So um, that plurality um, almost always takes a singular verb and in translations therefore God's is translated in the singular as God. Um, but very, very rarely, and most spectacularly at the beginning of Genesis, um, God uses a plural verb to refer to himself. So, um, and God said, let us, so Elohim, God's, said, let us make man in our own image. And then you get back to the singular. So in the image of God created he him, singular he, singular created. Man is also singular, created he him. And then that him turns into a plural for us. Male and female created he them. So the singular turns into a plural when it, when it comes to us. So for Herbert, that interplay of singular and plural, or for anyone who knows that passage in Genesis, and certainly anyone who is um, a priest or a minister, that interplay of singular and plural is very, very noticeable. Now the we of majesty, the royal we, probably comes from that moment in Genesis, let us make man in our own image. The idea is something like the very, very common idea um, that um, in lots of different languages that there's a formal and an informal you. Um, so this is pretty much gone from English, we've, but we have talked about this, um, but it's still true in French and German that um, you say tu to friends in French. That's called tutoying them, being able to say tu to them. And, um, and you say vous in more formal contexts and to your superiors. Um, so if you ever go to school in France, you don't want to address your professor as tu. Um, if you're a child in France, um, your teacher will, will talk to you as tu because you're a child, but you will talk to your teacher as vous because they're an adult. Um, same in German, it's du and, and z. Um, German is even more complicated because there's a familiar, there is an English also, there's a familiar and there's a formal you plural. Um, in English, the, the familiar you plural is ye, y-e. If you ever write historical fiction, um, if someone addresses ye like ye are all thieves and murderers, um, that would be right because the ye is a put down. It's a, it's, it's a superior talking to an inferior. Um, an inferior talking to a superior, even in the plural, would say you. Like, um, you are all important men. Um, it's the same in Russian. Is it? Sleet, see, and I can't do it, but sleet and fleet. Yeah. Yeah, same in uh, Serbian. It's uh, C is informal and um, V is formal. Um, so, um, and it, se it, seems, it seems to be a mark of politeness in lots of languages. Is there something like that in Chinese? Maybe. 
Would you say you the same way to a child and to a teacher? To a teacher, we use uh, we use you, but uh, how can I put it? Um, it's a it's a you, and then there's a heart behind it to show the respect. Uh huh. I see. Yeah. So so it's the context with which you use it. Uh huh. And, uh, superior. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Good. Yeah. 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 Or you could say hello, professor. <laughs> when I first met Mary, her son um, knew two words in English, right? Because I promised yeah. him to play computer games. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he, he. How old is he? Five. Yeah, so he just came up to me with his big grin and said, Hello, Professor. <laughs> so I started talking to him. He had no idea what he was saying. <laughs> Those are the two words he knew. Um, so I said, Ni hao. And he thought, Man, you don't know intonations. You don't know anything. Um, but in, um, and in Japanese, there, well, a there are a million. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Crazy. yeah, it's the verbs in Japanese are really important for. Um, yeah, but it's also Status. all of the honorifics. Yeah. Which are, some of them are like contextual, some of them, yeah. Yeah. So, but at any rate, um, there is this idea that you can say we, and you would never say we to a superior, but on the other hand, it's really only kings who say we, so how are they going to say we to a superior, um, except to God? But, you know, you can't imagine um, a king praying to God and say. Oh, we have adored you all our lives, dear Lord. Um, it has to be singular. Um, but to some extent, it's, it's coming from um, Genesis. And God is using the we of majesty as well. And that's what you get here, except there's something too casual about it. There's something that feels off about it. And again, this is a subtle thing, and I'm just trying to, trying to get you to hear what you might not naturally hear because it's not part of our natural idiom anymore. But having a glass of blessings standing by, you know, just happening to have a glass of blessings there, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. So what does all we can? The entire jar? The entire jar, yeah, everything that we can, that we can, but what can't God do? Make him immortal. Well, no, he could. I mean, I, I meant that as a rhetorical question. Oh, huh. Like God can do anything, right? Yeah. If it's doable, God can do it. What were you gonna say? Yeah. Okay, that might That's that might be a contradiction in terms. Well, he could, but then there wouldn't be freedom. No, just the question, I'm asking you the simplest question, which is, are there any limits to God's omnipotence? And the answer, the, really. yeah, the standard answer is only self-contradiction. That is, you know, the old stoned question, can God create an object that he can't move? Well, no, aha, so you don't think he's omnipotent? Well, yes, oh, so there's something he can't move. Aha, atheism rules. Um, and... Um, the reason atheism doesn't rule, uh, at least on the basis of that, is that to ask God to do something, what you're asking God to do is something that's a self-contradiction, but a self-contradiction is not um, something that could be done by, some, by an omnipotent being. A self-contradiction is actually nonsense. 
Um, so to say, you know, hey, can't, if God can't create something that he can't move, that's like saying God um, can't create um, a, a blue absolute. Um, or to use Chomsky's famous phrase, Chomsky says, here's a sentence that sounds like it means something, but it doesn't. Do you know what it is? Colorless green ideas dream furiously. So, you know, if you could look up all the words, it sounds like an English sentence, um, but it makes no sense. It's just a bunch of words that are grammatically appropriate to where they are in the sentence, but semantically you have pure nonsense. Um, and in the same way to say, um, create an object that you can't move, um, if you're so omnipotent, you should be able to create an object that you can't move. Um, no, that's like saying, God, can't you get some colorless green ideas to dream furiously, like now, please, if you're so omnipotent? And the answer is no, because it, there's no meaning to that sentence. Um, so there's no meaning to create an object that you can't move. Um, but um, how about what God can pour onto man? Um, the point about the line is it feels very human. Like it's, you know, let's, um, um, I don't know, let, let's uh, buy up all the, gum, all the gum we can um, for the party tonight. Um, so that we can stick it on people's chairs because we're April Fool's pranksters. <laughs> or let's chew all the gum we can so we can stick it on people's chairs. Um, and the idea is the limits are we're only human. There's only so much gum you can chew. Um, and um, that's what God is sounding like here. So here's a glass of blessings. Oh, I'm creating man. Glass of blessings. Let me pour as much as I can onto him from this glass of blessings as though he's a craftsman who happens to have this glass of blessings on the table, standing by. The idea that something is standing by in heaven. Oh, look, a glass of blessings on my table. That's lucky. And here's man whom I'm creating. Let me pour all that I can, except it's let us pour on him all we can. So there's also, you get a sense of collaboration. Like, hey, what do you guys think of this idea? Let's pour on him all we can. And they all agree. Good idea. Um, so the we of majesty, which is what's kind of justifying that, is also going against a feel in the poem of um, this thing that's kind of casual and kind of um, just everyday creation, not the creation of humanity. Let the world's riches which dispersed lie, so everything that belongs to the world, and here now we're getting to the idea that um, there are some animals that are smart and some animals that are courageous and some animals that are um, um, fast and, and so on. Let's put the best of everything into humans. So let the world's riches which dispersed lie contract into a span. Um, all become concentrated in the in a, in a in a small space that is what a span is is how far a hand can reach a hand span is it, it's short for a hand span or the span of your hand um, it's for most people an octave and a half on the piano um, so that's what he did so strength first made a way first of the world's riches strength first made a way 
then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. All of those things went into humans. We were made strong, we were made beautiful, wise. Honor maybe either means honorable or concerned with honor. That is, honor was an issue for us, which it doesn't seem to be for animals. Um, they fear being punished. If the dog poops on the rug, it'll look ashamed. But it's not a point of honor to the dog. <laughs> Never to poop on a rug. <laughs> All you other dogs. But I would never do such a thing. Um, so these are all human, um, or this combination is all combinations of human characteristics. And pleasure, that's great. We get to feel pleasure also. It's kind of great to be a person. I'm a gods are us kid. No, that won't work. Um, so strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure, all the world's riches, which seem to take about a line to say, or two lines, strength, beauty, wisdom, honor, pleasure. That's it. When almost all was out, almost all was out from what? The jar of blessings. From the jar of blessings, the glass of blessings. When almost all was out, God made a stay. He stopped. He corked the glass up. He wouldn't let anything else be poured out of it. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay. So the only thing still in the glass of blessings is what rich? What um, good? Most. Sorry? Wait, you're saying rest is in the hierarchy of blessings? As in a no, 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 just what's left in the, what's left in the jar. Rest. Yeah, just rest, the possibility of rest. Um, so there's a pun in the poem on rest as what remains. That is, uh, yeah, uh, take what you need and leave the rest. Um, citation? It's a song. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. They never should have taken the very best. I want to say the Beatles. But no. <laughs> the same vintage, it. almost a little, a little younger. The band. No, um, Beach Boys? No, the band. The band. The band, oh, the band literally. The, the band, band yes. Uh, what song? Do you know? The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down? Okay, yeah. All right. Um, so, all that's left, if, he, if God were to pour the rest onto man, what he'd be pouring is the rest onto man. So perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay, he makes a stay seeing that. For if I should, said he, so what's happened now? There are two said he's in this poem, right? Back to himself, individual. Yeah, singular. Also, the second one is capitalized. Not in this. Oh, I have a weird edition, never mind. Well, no, it's, it may be that you're following the original published edition. You know, Herbert's poems were published right after his death. And whether they would look they were almost certainly in the order he would have put them in. Um, that was the point. Um, but they're still published from um, manuscripts. And whether they would have looked um, like, um, whether they would have been, been punctuated and, and spelt as they are if he had 
publish them, we don't know. So it's not that big a deal. As I say, it's always good. The same, the same thing's true with Dunn. It's always good if you don't have to worry about um, editing authoritatively um, because you can just go into wildernesses of argument about the tiniest things instead of just letting the words do what they're doing. Um, so if there is an authoritative edition, of course you have to do it. Um, and it's a real relief when there isn't. <laughs> so, um, so in other words, don't worry about the capital H. So for if I should, said he, and here the distinction, the important thing is not if we should, but if I should. So why the change from we to I? Again, think atmosphere. Think the orchestration of atmosphere in Herbert. Does he need help to pour to pour the things on him? But now he's now that it's done, he doesn't need. Okay, it's probably. Um, All that they're capable of, all that we can, like yeah. from all of them, and now he's going to take care of the rest now that they're done. Yeah, um, but the word for there, I see what you're saying, and that that's a, that's a nice idea. But the word for there, um, me links it. It's a conjunction technically. Um, you know, you know that and is the conjunction, and you always know and is a conjunction. But is sometimes a conjunction. Yet is sometimes a conjunction. For can also be a conjunction a sentential conjunction. So it's a conjunction, and what's being conjoined is conjunction, junction, what's your function? Oh what God. its function <laughs> is, is that he's continuing um, his thinking about what he'd been thinking before. Um, so for if I should do this also, um, that's what he says, for if I should said he bestow this jewel also on my um, so he's been the one doing the pouring before. Um, so why the change from we to I then? What's the feeling of heaven that you get in stanza three? Let's just say that in stanza one, the feeling of heaven you get is something like this. Um, it's a place with a lot of angels or gods, or God has a lot of friends in heaven. Maybe that's a way of putting it. And he's got a court. Um, and he says to the court, you know, um, um, let's pour on him all we can, you know, the way a baseball manager might say, you know, let's get that run and tie the game. Um, and then when you get to stanza three, like you don't have alone. that. It sounds like he's God, alone. Yeah. 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 So why that shift, that switch to sounding alone? Well, I mean, that's... One, I mean, one possibility could be it's there's hesitance in this, so that it's sort of a switch of, I guess, a more energetic kind of. It, it does sound like a group project going to. Oh wait, well if I if I do this, it's wrong. But I, I mean, what seems great about it in my mind is that that's. Firstly, the, the notion that God can be hesitant and also shows the, the sort of multifaceted nature of him, which is echoed in the, the idea that he could be many beings in the first stanza and just one in the third. Yeah. 
Okay, so he's multi, he's multifaceted because one of his facets is that he's not multifaceted. Mm. Yeah. Does that have yeah. to do with death at all? Why? Did the dressie die? Um, or did something happen to? Well, he or the he's first made man. Like, did he descend now, or is it like the, the change, the dynamic between God and this person change? Well, so this isn't about sin, except you're right that man is sinful. Um, that's what the fourth stanza is going to be about. But I think, again, I, I think of this as, as I say, the orchestration of atmospheres. That is, that um, what we feel in stanza one is there's plenty of plenty. There's plenty everywhere, and lots of it. So plenty of plenty. And then in stanza two, there's this glass of blessings and this world's riches, and it's all great, and he starts pouring them out, and then he stops. He says, oh, no. We're almost out, when almost all was out. It turns out that all this plenty, it takes two lines to deplete it all. You can just pour it onto man, and two lines later, there's almost none left. So what looked like plenty of plenty turns out to be, actually, there isn't very much plenty at all. All that's left is rest at the bottom, and it didn't take long to get there. And then the atmosphere that you feel in the third stanza is, for if I should, said he, so it's no longer, you don't no longer feel like you're in this rich court in heaven. Yeah. I just, I was looking at a footnote. I don't know if this is actually relevant, but it says, in this poem, three different meanings apply to rest. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't say what they are. Okay, well, <laughs> so one... <laughs> um, so one of them is... Um, Rest as in um, peace. Yeah, one as it, it. Yeah, one is, and that's what lay, that's what is still lying on the, in, that's what's still in the glass of blessings is this last <coughs> blessing, which is the blessing of peace. Um, it's the rest of, you know, rest in peace, rest. Mm -hmm. um, there's rest as in the remainder. Um, that is, this is all that remains. Um, and if there is a third meaning, it would mean it would be something like um, leave things be. So those two meanings are related. The verb rest, as in you know rest there or rest in peace, and the idea of someone's eternal rest, those are related but not quite the same thing because to rest means to remain as a verb. Um, and if you remain, you may find rest that may give you rest, as in um, uh, peacefulness and, and um, an end to labor. By remaining somewhere, by resting there, there's an end to labor. When Hamlet says to the ghost, rest, rest, perturbed spirit, he means both, um, you know, don't be perturbed anymore, just relax, calm down, but also, Stop following us around. Stay there. So when God makes a stay, there's that's one that's that's resonating with one of the meanings of rest. And then there's um, the idea of the rest. All of those are related because the rest is what still remains. Um, that is, you know, oh, you can eat the rest of that. It means what you haven't eaten and therefore still remains on your plate. Um, and because it's still there, it's resting on your plate. Um, it's at rest on your plate. I mean, that's another, another way we would use it. Um, 
you know, so when, when Newton says that bodies in motion remain in motion and bodies at rest remain at rest, he's not talking about dead bodies. He's not saying, well, when something dies, <laughs> it stays dead. Um, but those words are connected to each other. Those different meanings are connected to each other. Um, so, so the three meanings are three resonances. But again, I think atmospherically what's happening here is what looked like a really rich and highly populated and full and plentiful heaven becomes, in stanza three, God alone. His, his singularity rather than his multiplicity is what's left, as though he's lonely. Lonely might be too strong a word, but as though the idea of plenty, um, the glass is almost empty, and that means that the poem is almost empty of the idea of plenty. It's as though even the poem is itself the glass of plenty, with almost everything poured out now. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel, namely rest, also on my creature, remember creature means created being, he would adore my gifts instead of me. And rest in nature, that is stay in nature, so that would be that meaning. And rest in nature, not the god of nature. Not that he would say, oh, it's, it's such a beautiful day, I would simply rest. It means he would just stay there. Um, that's the rest in arrest. Um, if you're arrested, then you can't go where you want. You have to rest where you are. Um, you have to stay at rest on pain of being um, uh, punished or injured or stopped. Um, so he would adore my gifts instead of me and rest in nature, not the god of nature. So both should losers be. Who are the both? Who's, who will be a loser if man rests in nature? Name one. Man will be. Yeah. So man will be a loser if he um, rests <coughs> in nature. And who else will be a loser? God. And God. So God would also be a loser if man were complete. So the loneliness of God, you really feel that possibility by line 15. If man doesn't come back to me, I will be a loser too. Yet, God goes on, yet let him keep the rest, that is all the other jewels, strength, beauty, honor, pleasure. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. So keep them, what's the them? The other gifts. The other gifts. That's where the plural is now. But keep them, not it, which is what we'd expect. Um, like, well, I took the rest and I gave it to a homeless person. Not I took the rest and I gave them to a homeless person. Mm -hmm. But here that rest, here the plurality is going to the world, to the rest, but it's not what matters anymore. What matters is the singularity, the solitariness, the, um, the stripped down bareness of what's left. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness 
may toss him to my breast. So our own restlessness will make us weary and will toss and turn like restless sleepers, but be tossed to God like to the breast of the ocean, um, to the breast of the sea, and return to God for that reason. Okay, Marvell for Friday, um, page 559 or something in this book. Um, up, wrong, 531 through 583. So uh, that's not so much for Friday, so read that for Friday. And, uh, we'll spend a day or two on Marvell. We'll see how it goes.